Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. That was a good belt. <laughs> If the bell's too loud at the beginning, then uh, it doesn't fade away nicely. The best part of the bell ringing is the fading away. Let's try it again. Yeah. The best part of the bell is that the fading away harmonizes with whatever is happening. You can shut the window if it's loud. Is it loud? Yeah, it is. Okay, let's shut the window. Um, so like the bell, uh, when, when we're sitting together, you should just let your breathing harmonize with whatever's showing up. That's the whole heart of this practice. Um, a few years ago, uh, I had a student named Jerry who was a really great meditator. He hated meditation, uh, but he loved pranayama practice. Uh, and then while we were working together, he found out that he had cancer and that he would only live for a couple of years and that uh, the process of the cancer would become very, very painful. And so he said to me, uh, I'm not scared about the cancer, I'm not scared about dying, but I'm scared of the pain. So I started teaching him meditation practice, um, and uh, then uh, he didn't like it very much. Well, he didn't tell me he didn't like it, but I could tell he wasn't practicing. <laughs> so uh, then um, instead we did pranayama practice, uh, really simple yoga breathing techniques, and he loved it, he loved it. So then uh, 
uh, after I think maybe almost a year, um, I had to travel a lot, and I had a little baby, and um, and then Jerry, it was harder for him to get from his house in Newmarket to my house. Uh, so then I introduced him to Elaine, because she lived in Newmarket, I think, at the time. And so Elaine started going to his house and teaching him pranayama. Everything I was teaching her, I think she was doing with him. And uh, he was a really beautiful person. Uh, every, this time of year, I always think about him, because this is when he got sick. And um, anyways, uh, then after a while, Elaine and I have never talked much about this, about him really, but after a while, uh, uh, he ended up in the hospital eventually, and his family called me and said, uh, you should come to the hospital. Um, he wants you to, to come here. So uh, I went to the hospital, and I remember when I walked in the door, as soon as I walked in the door, he put out his hand. And so I just sat down beside him, and I, I held his hand. And his hands are... Uh, does anybody here uh, know or you are an academic? Yeah. Like, academics have the best hands because they've never worked ever. <laughs> so they have, like, these really soft, beautiful hands because they've never done any labor. Um, so he had those hands. Like, the only thing they've ever touched are computers, you know, and book pages. Um, so anyways, I held his hand, and, and I remember I said to him... Um, uh, don't worry, uh, everything's going the same way you're going. He, he really liked this. This was really satisfying. I said, like, we're in different times, but everything is going with you. And uh, so I went to the hospital, you know, maybe, uh, I don't know, a few days a week for several weeks, and and while he was dying. And every time I came in, he put out his hand, and I held his hand, and I said, don't worry. Everything's going the same direction as you. And uh, he really liked this. And then the funny thing about the whole process is uh, he didn't ever uh, experience uh, a lot of pain. And uh, I could tell you lots of stories uh, about him, but uh, the, the, the best part was, was uh, this feeling he had near the end, the, at the very end, where he, he really uh, could get into that notion that, like, e- everything's heading in this direction. And, and being kind of uplifted by this, like really practicing uh, dying. And um, so I, I think about this a lot when I think about the bell, because uh, when you hear the bell ring you should really feel the fading of the bell. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, yeah. And uh, for those of you who come on retreat, we have a lot of bells. We have small bells, medium bells, large bells. Especially on the New Year's retreat, there's a lot of bells. <laughs> and, uh, and so um, you should never hit the bell. You shouldn't even say, hit the bell. Uh, Instead, you want to bring the voice out of the bell. So um, you want to coax the voice out of the bell. So the voice is free uh, and inspiring. It's like parenting. You want your child to be inspiring and free. So you have to coax their voice. And it has nothing to do with you. So... um, 
uh, ringing the bell should be the same gesture as bowing. Exactly the same. And sometimes, especially on retreat, there are times where you bow and you the bell rings at the same time. So the bow should have the fade in it, just like the, the ringing uh, of the bell. Um, and to keep in mind for all of us that the bell is not something that marks time. The first uh, reason why we have a bell is because it settles your mind. If you invite it in with your body. And this is really true for the people who are sitting near the timekeeper because you can feel when they move to ring the bell. And when they move to ring the bell, you should invite the bell into your whole body. So that instead of thinking it as a time marker, uh, you're allowing it in as an experience of a birth and then this experience of, uh, of death. And for the person ringing the bell, your job is to ring the bell for the sangha, for the community of all beings that can hear. Trees, bricks, flowers, cats, dogs. Uh, Whenever I'm teaching someone how to ring the bell, I always say to them, imagine that you're ringing the heart, the little heart, of every single person in the room. Did I ever tell you that? (laughs) (laughs) And you put your whole life into it. So when you ring the bell, um, you're doing what you can do, and you're expressing yourself. And uh, everybody has to do something. So in that moment, that's your, your job. And sometimes, you know, it feels in the room as we practice and the years go on, like one person has a hierarchy and another person doesn't have hierarchy. Like, oh, finally, like, I'm a bell ringer. Because our minds just are like this because we went to school, you know. And uh, so it's important not to think of jobs as hierarchical, but just to think of them as practice positions. So right now I'm in this practice position and Angela's in this practice position, and Andrew's in this practice position, and the practice positions are always changing. Mike is in the blog position, and everybody is in their, their, their position. Just like the little microphone is in its position, totally in its position. And it's not going, I wish I was in the ringing the bell position. <laughs> it's just microphoning. And your bell ringing. So, uh, this isn't what I was going to talk about tonight. Uh, Anyways, uh, because for the past few months and uh, continuing next month also, I've been uh, every month teaching a koan from the traditional uh, curriculum of Zen koans uh, in untraditional and unorthodox ways, uh, next month, I want to tackle the most difficult koan, uh, which many of you have probably come across, uh, the koan of Mu, uh, or sometimes known as uh, uh, Joshu's dog. Um, but I felt before that we needed to uh, spend a, 
one Tuesday talking more deeply about how language works in meditation practice and some techniques for working with language in meditation practice, especially if you're meditating on an idea or a concept or a sentence. Um, so that's what I want to focus on uh, tonight. Uh, one of the big challenges in mindfulness meditation practice is thinking. And if you don't know how to use your thinking in meditation practice, your thinking will just use you. And then you're just going to be like a toy for your thinking. Uh, for some people, thinking is a really powerful force that can keep you distracted for so many years that you've probably spent more time in your anxious thinking and your future and planning or regretting your past than you are in your own heart in the immediacy of, of the moment. We've all been through this. Um, one of the simplest ways of working with thinking is a practice from the insight meditation tradition, the Vipassana tradition, called noting or labeling. And this is the first meditation practice technique I ever used. And um, I still find it really difficult. Uh, so tonight I want to unpack it a little bit because I'm going to offer it as homework uh, for everybody to work with. But it's a technique that um, is more complicated than it sounds uh, at first. And the way I learned it was my teacher said, uh, use your senses, and every time you sense something, to label it twice. So there's following the breath, and then there's a sound, and you say, hearing, hearing. Or if the wind comes in, touching, touching. Feeling, feeling. And you label everything twice uh, in terms of the senses. Um, and this uh, uh, practice comes out of a certain stream of Vipassana practice. Western Vipassana practice is very influenced. The Insight Meditation School is very influenced by the Thai tradition, a teacher in the Thai tradition named Ajahn Chah and uh, the Burmese tradition. Um, and in the Burmese tradition, the teacher's name was Mahasi Sayadaw. Um, and those two streams influenced my teachers a lot when I was learning insight practice. And I wanted to read to you how Mahasi Sayadaw taught um, noting practice. And this is from a transcript of a lecture he gave um, in uh, Rangoon in Burma. Uh, we must make ourselves aware of everything, he says, by noting, seeing, seeing, hearing, hearing, smelling, smelling, tasting, tasting, touching, touching, thinking, thinking. So can you picture this? Following your breath, and every time that you go off, up, thinking, thinking, come back to your breath. Touching, like an itch, touching, touching. Hearing, hearing. Every time one sees, hears, smells, tastes, touches, or thinks, uh, 
one should make a note of the fact. In the beginning of one's practice, one cannot make a note of every one of these happenings, so just begin with noting those happenings which are easily perceivable. With every act of breathing, the abdomen rises and falls, and the movement is always evident. This is known as the element of motion. One should begin by noting the movement, which may be done by the mind intently observing the abdomen. You'll find the abdomen rising when you breathe in and falling when you breathe out. The rising should be noted mentally as rising and the falling as falling. Can you picture this? This is how I teach meditation to kids. I get them to lie down on their back and put something like a stuffy on their belly and just when they inhale, just go up and they exhale down and try and do it five times before they tackle the kid next to them. Um, Do not alter the manner manner of your breathing. Uh, Don't slow it down or make it faster. Don't breathe vigorously either. You'll tire if you change the manner of your breathing. In Vipassana meditation, what you name or say doesn't matter. What really matters is to perceive. While noting the rising of the abdomen, do so from the beginning to the end of the movement, just as if you were seeing it with your eyes. Your mind may wander elsewhere while you're noting the abdominal movement, and then note this, saying, wandering, wandering. When this has been noted once or twice, the mind stops wandering, in which case you go back to noting rising and falling. Then go back to the rising and falling of the abdomen, and if you imagine meeting somebody, note, meeting, meeting. Then go back to rising and falling. If you imagine meeting and talking to someone, note, talking, talking, meeting, meeting and then come back to the rising and falling. Can you picture this a little bit? So words are really important, and thinking is really important. And in meditation communities, thinking is always treated like an enemy. Like we should get beyond our thinking. Or if you have stories that replay, you should go beyond stories or underneath stories. And that language is like a bad thing to have around. And if you've ever tried to stop language in your practice, it's really a condition for suffering. It's like hydra, like you cut off one head and another sentence pops out somewhere else. Um, But we really need to name things sometimes. So a good example of this is appreciation, right? If you appreciate somebody internally... Uh, nothing, there might not be any real uh, energy in it, you know, just a, it's just kind of there. But if you actually realize it, and then you say to the person, I really appreciate how you helped uh, clean the space today. Or I really appreciate the way you stayed a little bit late yesterday and, uh, you know, uh, put water in the cooler. Um, and then when you say to someone, I really appreciate you, uh, gratefulness arises in the other person. All of this just because of a name. And a promise is like this too. If you're getting married to somebody and you know there's some ceremony, whatever it is, 
And at the end, they say, you know, are you, can you do this? You're like, really? Are you sure? And then you say yes. That, that vow really means something. If you're like a postmodern Buddhist and you're like, I'm not going to say anything because language is free-floating, it's relative, and it's empty of inherent substance, uh, I'm just going to you know, say it to myself. It's all relative. Uh, then like, there's no energy in it. There's no vow. That's why uh, in the course that we run at Center of Gravity on ethics, at the end of the course, when it's time uh, for people, if they choose, to take their precepts, when they do so, I always ask them every time. Uh, many of you have done this before. Does, it, does anybody remember what happens? How many times do you get asked? Three. Yeah, three times. So we say, you know, can you... Uh, commit to the practice of non-harming. And someone says yes, and then we say, "Are you sure?" And then they say, uh, "Yeah." And then you say, uh, "Are you really sure?" <laughs> and, and we always ask three times, and that's been a tradition for thousands of years. Uh, not thousands, one thousand years, is um, three times you ask. So that somebody's really, their whole body is behind the yes. Yes. So that's a really simple way of thinking about uh, language. But the point is, is that noting or labeling offers an acknowledgement of something that can be really important. Um, has anybody had it, an experience where they have a kind of like free-floating emotion, but they don't know what it is, you know, or whatever? And then someone says, uh, it seems like you had a hard day. And then there's like this relief, like, oh, yeah, I've had a really hard day. And just because of the naming of it, it's like we can embody it. because it's been, and, and sometimes you'll correct them. And you'll say, well, no, it's not exactly a hard day. Uh, and they'll say, oh, well, maybe you didn't sleep sleep so good? Say, no, no, I slept pretty good. Did you eat something a little a little off? And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I got drunk last night. Like, I just can't remember. You know. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> <laughs> but you feel in some way the simple acknowledgement helps helps you relax into into what you're what you're feeling. So in noting practice, uh, the way that I usually teach it is the first way um, I work with it with students is when you're inhaling, just say to yourself, peace in. And when you exhale, say to yourself, peace out. Just noting as the inhale, peace in, peace out. The second way I introduce it uh, is... If you can stay with your breathing, then when your thinking goes into the future, you just say, future, future. <coughs> and then you come back to your breath. And when your thinking goes into the past, and I've done this sometimes for 10 whole days straight. When your thinking goes into the past, you just say, past, past. And the reason why this one is really important is because in the past few years, most of the meditation technique that I've been teaching in this space and on retreat 
is really uh, shikantaza style, Zen style of practice, where we're just doing open awareness. But sometimes you might think your open awareness is open, and then you try to do a little naming, and you see that your concentration technique has gotten really bad, actually. That you think, oh, I'm just open and I'm noticing stories, but then you start to see, once you do a little bit of noting, that maybe that muscle could be worked a little bit uh, more. And for those of you who are interested in koan practice, you need that noting muscle to be really strong so that you can label something and not add anything on top of it. Do you know what I mean by that? It's just past, past, back. (laughs) Future, future, and you're back again. We also might find it interesting to notice the tone of the voice that's doing the labeling. Sometimes the tone can be harsh. Sometimes the tone is mechanical. Sometimes the tone has boredom in it. Or maybe the tone has just become complacent. So the most important thing about labeling is not actually so much getting the label right, but seeing the tone of the watching. Because when you notice something you always notice it with an attitude. And if you can check out the tone of how you're noticing, then you can undo that knot, which is the attitude with which you're noticing something. So for example, pain, pain. Or is it like, ah, you know? Or if there's pleasure, do you go like, pleasure, (laughs) pleasure. So that's, that's not noticing practice. Right? <laughs> noticing practice is pleasure, pleasure. You don't hold on to it. Pain, pain. You don't cling on to it. This is really, really helpful for people who experience a lot of negative mental chatter, which I just cannot explain anymore. I used to think I can explain it. Now I'm totally perplexed why, when our mind is idle, it goes to the negative. I, I don't understand it anymore. I used to have good theories about it, but now it's confusing. How come when our minds start going idle, <laughs> they start going to the negative? You might have a murderous rage about someone, and then you just say to yourself, Rage, rage. For me, I don't get rage so much. I get revenge fantasies. So when... There's just future. It's about the past, but it's future. So you should just notice. Rage, rage, future, future. And you come back to your... Bre- I have some really good ones. One day I'm just going to give a, 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 a talk of all my revenge fantasies. <laughs> So you want to see it and note it and feel it at the same time. Okay? This is really important. So there's noting and there's feeling at the same time. So it's not like you're going rage, rage, rage over there. It's actually saying rage, rage, rage is embodying the rage. 
but it's keeping you from getting into the whole drama about the rage. But it, it, it's, it's, it's anchoring you in the feeling of the rage. But you're not acting it out. So you're embodying the rage. Or the boredom. Or whatever it is. So that you can feel the energy without putting yourself in it. You see? Do you understand what I mean by that? So the thing about the labeling is that you're labeling the raw energy, feeling the rawness of that energy, but you're not putting yourself in it. So there's a kind of brightness in it, but the brightness is not you. Like in high school photography, I remember every time I took a picture with this camera that my grandmother gave me, the people's eyes were always red. doesn't matter who I took. They all had these eyes. And then I remember the teacher saying that the camera is taking a photograph of the light from its own flash. And it's reflecting through the retina of the person who I'm taking the picture of. So the camera is always inscribing itself in the object that it's taking the photograph of. And you can't separate those two. The camera is taking a picture of itself, taking a picture of the image. And this is the thing we see in meditation practice. How there can be an energy moving through us that we personalize. Where we're getting more of me and the drama of me than the emotion that's actually showing up. And this is really important because this is the water we're all swimming in. We're living in the empire of selfies now. <laughs> the crumbling empire of ourselves. And of course we are, because it all has to do with labeling and with language. The main thing I've thought about since I was a kid is that every one of us is a psychologist and a fiction writer. Every one of us creates our theories of ourselves because of psychology. You might not think of yourself as psychological, but we're in a psychological age. If you're ill, you don't think about the way you planted something or a certain way you walked or a certain ritual you didn't complete. You think about how you're feeling and who maybe you hurt. Like if you ask someone how they are, within three sentences, they're talking about their relationships. That's probably a new thing for human beings. The point is, we're all fiction writers and psychologists because we all have unconscious ideas out of which we operate. And we can't see that language functioning all the time. Our world is constructed, and we're educated to see the world in specific ways based on our language, based on the language we have for ourselves and others and the language that we have that's been internalized. Nobody is unbiased and free. 
Nobody lives in an unconstructed world. So in meditation practice, we're looking at language because language can show us how we're constructed and how we're constructing the world simultaneously. When you read and walk and talk, you're looking at language. When you move your body, you're looking at language. I've noticed this a lot lately with my body because two years ago, uh, I took my son, who was nine, snowboarding at uh, Blue Mountain. And I don't know how many people here snowboard, but when you snowboard, your front foot is uh, locked into the board. And it's, it's the dumbest design. Because when you get on the chairlift, you take one foot out, and then your board is hanging on your leg. And it just tweaked my knee a little bit. So then my meniscus was torn. And then I had to get my meniscus fixed, because uh, I couldn't fix it. I tried everything. I couldn't fix it. So I went to the surgeon that everyone said is the best surgeon, and uh, he, he, he uh, clipped it. I'll tell you a funny story about that, actually. They put me under. This is a tangent, but they put me under. Has anyone had this before? Yeah, I've never had this before. They put me under. It was the first time I'd ever had that. And then, apparently what happened was, I was sleeping for like a minute, and then apparently I got up, and I told everyone in the room that I loved them. (laughs) I really liked knowing that. But, like, deep in there somewhere, I actually do have good feelings about people. <laughs> so, anyway, so then I got my meniscus clipped, and it didn't work. It didn't help. Uh, so then I needed a way to get my, uh, my knee fixed, because I spend a lot of time like that. And uh, so one day I decided, well, screw all this. I'm going to go to the gym. I've never been to a gym ever in my life, ever. And I went to a gym to use the quadricep machine, you know, and the hamstring. So first I was doing the quadricep one, and my knees are so weak. It was so embarrassing. Like, I didn't have it on any weight, and it was like, I couldn't, I could do like 10, and that's it. And then afterwards, I noticed everyone, after they did that machine, they went to the hamstring curl. And so then I don't have any hamstrings, because I've been doing yoga my whole life. And so my hamstrings have been at maximum length for my whole adult life so they has no muscle it's just like strings literally like strings of ham hanging off my sitting bones so then it it, so all this is about language which is that it completely made me rethink uh, everything that I'm doing in my yoga practice because then I realized that I'm so weak actually that yoga is making maybe the cause of my meniscus injury was not the snowboard It was just that my knees were so weak from sitting in lotus and half lotus for so many hours every day. Um, So, uh, uh, yeah, this is really important. We should do a whole night on this. Uh, um, And then uh, my friend Catherine, who's here, uh, she's obsessed with weightlifting. So now Catherine and I go to the gym together, and uh, we're bench pressing and squatting, and it's really, really fun. And uh, we have a new friendship. I've known Catherine since she was this big. Um, and, uh, and also now I have like a whole new experience with my body. 
Um, and for those of you who come to yoga classes, you also know that uh, I'm teaching differently because uh, our joints are all getting wrecked. So this is also about a new language. Yeah, right, Jack? Yeah. Um, so the world of moving your body is a language, and how you move your body has language all built into it. In a yoga posture, you just don't lift up your arm like this. If I lift up my arm like this, it has the language of Iyengar in it. And it has the breathing of Richard Freeman in it. And it has all of the teachings that have taught me how to lift my arm in this way. So this is all a pattern language. And likewise with words, uh, reading is not the same as talking. And talking is not the same as listening. And listening is not the same as reading an email. And the domain of uh, listening is not the same as the domain of writing. These are all different kinds of language. Um, Sometimes I feel like I don't know how to give a talk anymore. Because when I'm giving a talk, I'm trying to situate myself between articulating what happens in my life when I practice and what I think you need to hear when you practice. But I feel like the closer I can get to describe what really is going on in my heart and in my mind, then the deeper uh, my students can go because I can describe what's happening for me more clearly. But also that's not true. Because I realize today, when I'm writing notes for a talk, I'm not thinking of you at all. Like, I actually don't picture anybody in the room. I'm just trying to describe clearly what's happening in my experience, usually that week, whatever I'm practicing with. So that's kind of a weird way of communicating. For me to be using language in a way where I'm not thinking about the audience at all. But then that's not the same as when I actually get up here in the room and I look around and I think, oh, so-and-so is dealing with this right now and so-and-so is dealing with that and this person hates noting practice and this person loves noting practice. And then also I can see on your faces how your face responds to the language and then how my face, which I can't control, is responding to your face even while I'm using all these words. And all that's language also. All borrowed, none of it invented. All of it internalized from somewhere. So a Dharma talk is a very strange practice. You also use language when you read. When you read, you read alone. And when you read, you decipher hieroglyphics on the page that you turn into language. And when you read, you think, I am reading this author. But actually, when you read, you're making up the author. Because when you read, you're inventing meaning out of what you're reading that the author could never have intended. It's exactly the same as meditation practice. or exactly the same as interpreting your dreams, right? Most of the interpretations we make of our dreams were not intended by the dream. We add it. 
we make meaning out of it. So the reader and the author is actually the same, which is very frustrating for you authors. You can't control how the reader is going to read what you write. And isn't there something strange about the act of reading anyways? So private. Constructing a whole imaginary world. So hearing and reading are different ways of working with language that are also different domains. And one way you can really feel that is when you study old texts like we do. Because when you choose texts that come from an era of an oral tradition, they sound totally different and have a completely different energy as texts that were created at a time where people were codifying teachings into books. And oral teachings are much more embodied and they're much more magical. And they're